Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name is Mark Winteringham, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, and welcome back to Testers Island Discs uh, with me, your new host, Mark Winteringham. Um, Neil has sadly left us. He stole my boat, and he's left me on the island uh, to languish by myself. Uh, but fortunately, I am not alone. I have a guest with me today. Uh, she's a passionate, context-driven test manager with 16 years of diverse IT experience. Uh, she's an owner and principal consultant at Unimagined Testing, which we're going to talk about a bit. Uh, she's a tester, consultant, collaborator, leader, and thinker. Oh, busy work. Um, welcome, Nancy Cohn. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a beautiful island you've got here. Yes, it's it's much better than the actual island that I'm living on at the moment, which is very, very rainy. Anyway, we're not here to listen to me uh, grumble about the weather. Um, the first thing I did want to ask, though, was um, unimagined testing. Like, how did you come up with that name? Yeah, so I had a different name uh, before this one, which causes me quite a bit of fun when it comes to tax time every year. But the name I had before was Kellen Incorporated Software Solutions, which was just very boring sounding and a lot to say. So a bunch of tester friends and I were talking one night about what are some good names for a testing consultancy company. And I get a lot of feedback saying I do testing differently and it doesn't look like the traditional testing. So I thought, you know, maybe unimagined testing is a good name because it's people keep saying I've never seen testing done like this Uh it's interesting what you do. And I thought, you know, it's not anything people seem to imagine. So maybe unimagined would be a good word for it. So came up with that and it seemed to have stuck for the last five or six years. And I, I like it now. It's a, I think it's better than the original one that was fairly boring. Yes, I, I have a similar thing. Um, I, I have an old company left over from my contracting days and it's MW Test Consultancy, which is very dry. And I don't think I ever really did very much consultancy work. It was mainly contracting work. So um, yeah, I really like that as a name. I like that idea that um, I, I think it is a common pattern, unfortunately, in testing that uh, some of the things that uh, we do in testing um, seem quite sort of alien to other people. Yeah, exactly. So they they always say, I don't know what you're doing. And it seems like they've never imagined that testing can be the way that some of us are doing it. So that's a fantastic tagline. Like you'd never imagine testing like this. <laughs> yes, I might have to incorporate that. Welcome to that. I, I only take ten percent of all profits. Perfect. For that. Perfect. Yeah, brilliant. That this is my fair. way. This is this is how I'm going to retire on the island. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, let's uh, crack on and um, let's start with your first song. Why don't you tell us all about it? Sure. So this one, it's fairly. I think it's a newer one. Ed Sheeran's fairly new to the music scene, and it's called Perfect. And what I like about this song is he talks about how. He thinks he's found his perfect love. And in the beginning, everything, a new job or a new partner just seems perfect and really well fit. And then as you start to get more comfortable, you learn about the flaws that may be there. And it's a good reminder to me to say, you know, sometimes it's just good to look past the imperfect and find the perfect and focus on the positive or learn to see the imperfect as perfectly imperfect. So it's just a good reminder. And it makes me feel good when it comes on the radio to turn this one up and sing along. I found a girl. Beautiful and sweet well, I never knew you were the someone waiting for me Cause we were just kids when we fell in love Not knowing what 
that was perfect by Ed Sheeran. Um, I'm quite surprised no one else has actually really selected any Ed Sheeran songs, given um, just how popular he is. I think he's like the number one selling artist uh, last year, but he never actually released any new music last year, which is crazy. Huh, that has to be a new record. I think so. He must be able to buy his own islands, to be honest, with that sort of money. I would, if I was him. So, speaking of buying islands, very good segue here. Um, Talking about the sort of life of a consultant and sort of being your own boss, um, how did you get into consultancy? Great question. I can't buy an island yet, but I'm working hard at it. (laughs) Um, I was a full-time employee for a number of years. I actually, like most testers, fell into testing. I was a programmer, ended up in a company as a programmer, started doing testing because none of the programmers wanted to. And really enjoyed it and then found a full-time testing job and was there for, I think, two and a half, three years. And in the city that I live in, Calgary, in Canada, it's a fairly busy city as far as really big contracts. Our main staple here is oil and gas and exploration. So there's a lot of really big companies that have a lot of big projects that spin up and a lot of opportunity to do different consulting gigs, whether you're your own independent consultants or you're working with a larger firm. So back when I was just getting into testing, been there for a few years, there was a consulting opportunity that came up and a friend of mine reached out to me and said, hey, I think you'd be great. And that's what forced me to take the leap was just her faith in me and the fact that the job did sound really interesting and cool. It used a lot of the skills I had done as a programmer. I knew that I had the technical ability to do it. It was for uh, an electrical software replacement project. So they were replacing the software that controls the electrical grid for the province that I live in, which if we screw up, the lights would literally go out in Northwestern <laughs> Canada or Western Canada, I guess, and Northwestern United States. So it was a lot on the line to not mess it up. So got into that. I really enjoyed just the way it's different. You're on a project. It's usually fairly, fairly rigorously paced, interesting work. You get to learn a lot. It's really a feel of everybody jump in and help out however you can. Um, testing is can be really looked at as positive because they want to know if there's going to be problems with it. Uh, When you work with consultants, they understand that things are messy and don't go smoothly. So oftentimes they'll look to the testing team to be that beacon to shine on where the issues are going to be so that they can have a more successful release. Unlike some companies that just feel like, well, testing is a necessary evil. The auditors say we have to have it. Therefore, we have a team. So I found I got that better mix of interest, lots of fast paced stuff, lots of different interesting work. And just in the city that I live, there's so many opportunities to just go from one contract to another when big projects spin up and then they ramp up and another company spins one up. So I don't ever have to worry about, am I going to have another job? Because I know there'll always be something in this town. So one of the challenges I found when I was sort of in the contracting world and doing a little bit of consultancy work was that, um, it kind of required actually a lot of other things to do other than you know consulting about testing do you do you find yourself having to sort of learn new skills and having to do different activities outside of the consulting work to sort of find gigs and get your name out there yes there's a lot of networking there's probably a few things you have to do networking was the big one where you need to have your ear to the ground on what's going on in your town so I'm always, I subscribe to job boards to see, okay, where, who's hiring right now? What are they posting? What does that mean? 
for projects coming up. So not just testing jobs, but I'll uh, subscribe to BA jobs or project management jobs because most companies will hire their project manager, hire their BAs, and then look for their testers. So if I know that this company's posted a bunch of PM jobs and the job sounds like it's a replacement project of a SAP system, and now they've posted BAs for that, and it looks like it's going to be financial because they're looking for a lot of financial BAs, I can start to know that, hey, there's going to be projects in these areas because they're starting to recruit those first positions that they always recruit. Uh, also, you always have to have your resume up to date. So you're constantly updating your LinkedIn, your resume, every time you get a new job, really thinking about that job in the mindset of what are the skills I want to highlight here that show that I have that testing. Um, is my LinkedIn up to date? You also want to always be ready for an interview. So you're always thinking not to be nervous about interviews too, because you're always going to have a lot when you're in the consultant role. You're going to get interviews and maybe not get that role. So you'll have to do another interview. So I've applied after being in a role for a while and haven't had an interview for a couple of years, I'll apply for jobs just to practice having an interview. It may not be something I want or maybe something I'm overqualified for, but apply for it, practice the interview process just to see, hey, can I still even do this? And then there's all the bookkeeping side. So I've had to learn some degree of accounting. I know some of my friends just give it to an accountant and I, I don't trust people with my kids or my money. <laughs> so I like to know what's going on in both of those worlds with my children and with my money. So I don't necessarily like to just hand it over to an accountant and have them do it. So I've learned a lot of accounting to understand how is my money? Where is it? How can I get it to work harder for me so I can take time off? Because as a contractor and consultant, when you're off, you're not getting paid. So you want to make sure that you, if you want to take a month off, great, you have that flexibility, but you need to make sure you've got the money in the bank to support yourself during that time. Yeah, there's, there's, I think that's the, the key is that uh, when I've been asked in the past, like, like, how do you move into the space of contracting and consultancy? Like, what do I need to think about? Um, it's the same sort of thing of expect to be interviewed a lot. Um, although I, I would never, ever choose to do an interview unless I knew there was a job coming at the end. The idea of practicing interviews by going to others just sounds insane to me. Um, but um, yeah, all the extra bits and pieces around sort of getting yourself up, your bookkeeping, the networking and things, those tend to be the the dominant things I have to explain to other people when they're getting into it. Because if they're already feeling like they've got the skills to be a consultant or a contractor, then it's not necessarily the brushing up on the testing skills that's required. It's the appreciation for the other stuff. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So we'll talk a little bit more um, about sort of the challenges and uh, the rewards of, sort of being in that sort of role. But before we get into that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your second song? Yeah. So the second one's also another feel good summer song because been winter in Canada for a while now we finally have the sun and the green trees and leaves so this one's another feel-good one uh, it's broken by lovely the band and it's just a great one to listen to but it also is a good reminder that it's okay to feel vulnerable sometimes especially when I'm starting a new contract sometimes I feel like oh no they've they've hired me for my experience and I, I hope I can understand their project this time and bring the best to the table and every once in a while they'll throw a curveball at me and I feel like oh my gosh I don't I don't know that I can handle that. I, I doubt my skills. And at first it started to scare me and kind of just, I guess, make me worry. Am I going to be good enough? But this song reminds me that, you know, we all have flaws and even the projects that we're on are flawed. There's no perfect project. 
and we don't all have our shit together all the time. So it's a good reminder to just say, you know what, everybody, we're all struggling in this together, whether it's a crazy project that we're on or just even through life. And we may not always have all the answers, but you've got great support around you. Even with the testing community, I can always go to Twitter and put out a question there and get answers. In fact, I pinged uh, Mark Tomlinson the other day about some performance testing questions because my latest client's throwing some performance testing stuff at me. And that's definitely not my space, but I know great guys that I can reach out to in the industry and great ladies too, that I can just ping and go, Hey girls, I've got this challenge. Help me out and get great ideas. So this is just the song that reminds me, you know, we all have support out there and we can turn to somebody if we've got questions we can't answer. That was Broken by Lovely the Band. So we've been talking a bit about consultancy slash contracting. Um, what do you think some of the... Well, let's talk about some of the, the, the good stuff first. What do, you, what, do you, like, what do you think the rewards are um, for moving into this sort of role? So the big reward I get is I like to have experiences and then reflect on them and see what I can learn from each of them. So if I find, if I stay in a job, after about two, three years, I kind of feel like there's nothing left there for me, unless there's a huge reorg or a big promotion or opportunity, it becomes just the daily grind. You go in, you do the same thing every day, you come home. So I get bored. Where with contracting and consulting, it's always different. You may be like, my current contract is four months. So I'm going to get into this. I'm going to learn all about it. And then after four months, that's it. I set that aside and I have freedom and space to get into the next thing. I find as we get older and as adults, as we age, we take on more and more and it's hard to drop stuff. Like I often hear people in their thirties and forties saying, you know, I just can't say no. I just keep picking up more and more and more. So it's hard to create space to jump into something new with your full attention because we seem to just add little bits and keep all the other bits with us and just try to add more onto our plate. Where if you're contracting and consulting, you get to finish a project and you set it aside and you walk away and now you have all this beautiful space to do something else. Whether you decide, you know what, I'm going to take a break and just focus on travel, or I'm going to take a break and spend the summer with the kids, or I'm going to start a new job and I don't have the wrap up or the finishing of this last one because this is brand new and I've got space to start something new. So that's probably the biggest reward is just the space to try something new and then all of that reflection and learning. So as I go to the next role, I can say, okay, in the last one I did this and this piece will work. And two years ago at this job, I had this piece and that piece will work. And you get to take all these different tools that you have in your toolbox and combine them in new and interesting ways to come up with something different for whatever role you're on. Or you're lucky and you pull something out of the toolbox and you go, you know what, this is pretty much gonna work again. I don't have to do much other than change a couple of things. And I've got it all built. Sometimes that'll happen. I found that doesn't happen a lot. I'm usually always tweaking it or combining ideas. But this last one, I've been able to pull a few out that have been fairly straightforward and been able to reuse 
almost in their entirety, which has been a nice break from having to try and build something each time. How do you uh, counter the sort of the, the cognitive bias of uh, coming in with those sort of uh, those assumptions, those experiences, you know, trying to sort of apply a, a square peg to a round hole? That's where, and I've caught myself doing that. I'll open a template that I've used before and like a PowerPoint presentation and there'll be seven slides and I'll get to the fourth slide and realize, you know what, you've just, instead of changing it, you've just deleted the old content and filled in the new. And a few of these don't even make sense for this role. (laughs) So I think it's that constant reminder to go, even though I've got an old defect management template that this company doesn't have a defect management process, I can just give them this one you really need to look around and go, wait a minute, what are they doing here? Does it make sense? Um, That's the thing I'm working on right now is they don't have a good defect management system in place. In the last company, we only had priority, not severity for defects. So I thought, you know, I'll just get them to drop severity, then I don't have to add it to my document. But when I started to talk to their testing team, I realized, you know, they actually do need severity and they use priority and severity different than what I would have used in the previous company. So I'm going to have to read change, like change the definitions because it's not going to fit for this client and put severity back in because that is something that they need here. So I think it's just that constant remembering to look up, not just focus on, oh, I've got all these tools in my toolkit and I can use a hammer when I need a screwdriver. It it probably will work. It's not going to be pretty. So try it. If it starts to look like it doesn't fit, back up and take a step back and go, okay, look up, look around me, go, yeah, I'm going to need to change something here. So just always being, I guess, situationally aware, is it it going to work or are you just looking for a quick shortcut? And and that's the key of of context-driven testing, isn't it? It's the, the, the appreciation of the context around you. And it might be just those subtle differences are the things that can be quite telling at times. Yeah. And it's pulling stuff out of your toolbox and going, Hmm, what have I got here that'll fit? And the great part is when you clean up your tools after the job is done to go, oh, look at these new ones I've acquired now that I can add to the toolbox for the next thing. I really like the idea of the toolbox as well. I I think uh, a lot of testers don't really appreciate that that they have this toolbox. Um, And typically when I, because of the sort of space that I work in around automation, toolbox tends to mean like actual literal testing tools, but the idea of sort of uh, processes, uh, ways of identifying sort of different roles, um, ways of appreciating the dynamics of a team. I think I think all of those are equally as important and don't nec- don't really get the sort of love that they should have. Yeah, and sometimes it's just uh, well, not reinventing the wheel. Like this client that I have now said we want definitions for all the different testing types. So of course I I know them in my head. So I start writing them out, and I get to the second one, and I'm just struggling over it. How do I want to word this and what's going to make the most sense? And then I realized, you know, I've done this before. I have lists of all of these definitions. Let me pull some of them out because I know they've got great language around how I've described it in the past. And I've already wordsmithed it and put that extra effort in to make sure I spelt everything right. And the grammar's there and it's clearly communicated. Let me start from there rather than reinventing the wheel with a whole new list. And it's worth sort of, you know, we've talked about the positives, but, um, Without uh, turning this into a three-hour therapy session, um, <laughs> what, what would you say some of those, the negatives are of being in those sort of roles? Well, I mean, and I'm going to go with kind of how I'm feeling right now. It's <laughs> once when you start, it's always that like forming, storming, norming. And I, I probably missed one. Um, 
that you start a new contract and you kind of come in and you're thinking, oh, I, I know what their challenges are. This is going to be great. I know how to fix it. And then I forget that when I started the last contract, my clients were in a space where they sort of understood testing. They weren't really sure. Of course, I'm going to do testing that's going to look somewhat differently that they may be familiar with. So there's that whole education process of why do I do context-driven testing? How does it look different than traditional testing looks? Why is it important to test your software um, with open eyes and testers that understand the system rather than just hiring a bunch of new testers off the street, especially for more complicated software where they're going to write tests based on requirements and then somebody that doesn't understand the software is going to run them. How? Why is that bad? And I finally get people through that whole conversation and get them to where I need them to be so that we can do testing in this different way. And I'm just starting a new contract now and they've sent me their first draft of the test strategy and it's very much we're going to have the BAs write the requirements, then we're going to hire testers that don't know the system and they're going to use the requirements to write detailed test cases. And then we're going to hire more people and they're going to run those test cases. And this is for a very complex system that is brand new to the uh, company that I'm working with. It's also brand new for the vendors that are building it. So the vendors that are building it do have a product, but they're going to add to their product for this customer. So we're going to get brand new stuff that nobody's ever used to run this organization that's not going to be necessarily a successful model. If you have testers that don't understand the business and don't understand the software, they're going to do their very best, which is on a complicated system, may not be enough to know that it's going to be okay. So I have to start way back at step zero again with this client and educate them on why their model is flawed, even though that's what a lot of companies do, and they do it fairly okay without a lot of problems. But why when they have so much risk in this project already, so many unknowns that introducing this is just going to be another unknown, another big risk, and we have to look at testing differently on this project. So it's that whole constant socialization. So I found when I was creating content for them to walk them through that path, I was going back in my toolkit and pulling out slides and wording that I've used before in a number of different presentations to say, how do I get the message even better? Because it's tough to bring people to that headspace. And I think that's one of the biggest things that doing exploratory testing or context-driven testing, people are struggling with is it look it looks so much different in the beginning that you have to really earn that client's trust. And it's that trust earning that's the biggest challenge all the time for me. Because I just think, you know, it was, I got everyone there last time. It, and then it became so easy. It's this mountain I have to climb again to get to the top and make it be easy again. So we're probably going to talk a little bit more about how to implement exploratory testing and how to sort of bring risk back into the conversation. Um, but before we sort of talk about that, let's um, have a little uh, discussion about your third choice. So the first two were kind of feel good. You can listen with your kids in the car kind of songs. This next one, not so much, especially if you do the unedited version. So it's The Real Slim Shady by Eminem, which for me, the song really talks about being an imposter in a world where everyone has a certain expectation and mentality. And here this young kid shows up who doesn't fit the typical rapper theme. And he's talking about his experience. So it feels like to me when I walk into a very traditional testing shop and say, yeah, we're not going to use a big, huge test case management tool. And I'm not going to report on pass and fail metrics for test cases. Your defect metrics will look the same. 
you're going to have test scenarios. They're going to look very different than when you're used to. And I'm not going to give you pass and fail rates. And I sometimes feel like when I give that message as confident as I am when I'm at sessions and conferences where people get it, you walk into a room of very traditional project managers and they look at you like, who the heck did we just hire? We just made the biggest mistake in our organization. We're, we're doomed. <laughs> and here I'm telling them, no, you've made the best decision your organization could be. And even though you think you're doomed, you're not. I'm here to save the day and protect you from all these pitfalls that you don't see coming. And you probably were lucky as far as your last project. And this is an approach that I'm going to try with this client now that I haven't tried in the past. Typically, I'll give them more of the message that you'd hear from some of the other testers in the industry that really support exploratory testing, like James Bach and Michael Bolton, around the whole education and the information they give testers. And testers get it because we see trying to write test cases and we know that we're going off script and looking for things. And that's always how we find our best bugs. But our the people we're working for don't see that. They just as testers, we just know we do that, but our project managers and our other people we work with on projects don't necessarily know we do that. They just think Mary's a really great tester. She finds awesome things. They don't ask how. So when I'm trying to explain, I would focus a lot on the how and the why, much similar to the message that you'd see on a lot of the forums. With this client, my approach is going to be that if we do testing with that requirements-based, write test cases on requirements, get testers that don't necessarily understand the system to run them. And you've got a system that you don't expect to find a lot of issues with. So it's a tried and true system. They've built it for that industry a number of times before. We're really just changing a few minor configuration things. We don't expect to find a lot. That way will work. That way will get us the information that we need, we're going to find the dead obvious bugs. If something's configured completely wrong, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. It's it's safe because you know that your software is going to be of high quality. I'm trying to tell them that, and they already know this because we've already talked about, they see a lot of risk with this project. So that's where I'm going to focus. It's where they're already worried is about the risk and about how do we mitigate that risk and how do we know that we're going to be okay. So I'm going to play on their fear a bit around, yeah, you're right. You do have a lot of risk and this testing approach you're going to take is going to introduce more. And then I'm going to talk to them about how when the software is of high quality and we're fairly certain that it's going to work, we're really just looking for the big things. Testers that don't understand your business process, don't understand your software and are learning it as they test and learning it from documents will likely find those big things. But when you've got software that the vendor is going to show to us and say, what do you think? Is that going to work for you? Give us feedback. And we're trying to just test your requirements with people that don't understand the business process, don't understand the software. They're going to look at it and go, yeah, I guess that's good enough. It's, it seems reasonable. This looks okay. I'm not getting any big errors and nothing's really failing. I'm able to do what I've read the requirements, I've read the requirements I think that they mean. So this, this must be looking okay. Where I want to tell them, no, what you need is people that understand how your business works. So I'm proposing to them that we use a lot of their subject matter experts and business people to look at this software because they don't know the software, but they know what their business process is. And a lot of the people at this organization have been there 10, 20 years. So they, they can rattle off every process just off the top of their head. So when they look at the software and it doesn't follow that process, they'll know right away. 
In fact, I probably don't even need a really detailed test script for them to follow. I'll just say, hey, do this part of your job using this software instead. Tell me where it falls short. And then capturing the information that way, that's going to point out where the software doesn't match our process. And then we can either decide we have to change the software or we have to change our process. And where the software matches the process, they're going to be able to go, yeah, that's what we do. But I didn't expect this to happen and that shouldn't do that. And why does this do this over here? And then I'll be able to find bugs because they'll start asking questions around, well, it follows the process, but that was weird and that doesn't look right. And I don't know why it did this. And we can start to say, okay, is it that the way this new software works? And we just have to be aware that that's going to happen or are these actual issues? So that's the picture I want to try and paint for them is to say, you know, your approach is very standard. It, it works on projects and here's why. And you'll probably be okay until you bring business people in and they go, what the heck is this mess? Where if we start with bringing business people in, they can start to look at it early and go, what the heck is this mess long before we get to our UAT phase. And they can give that feedback and we can take that back to the vendor and go, yeah, guys, you missed the mark. Here's what we need changed. So that's this approach. I, I have yet to see if it's going to work. I have that meeting this week and we'll see what they think. I didn't realize M&M could uh, inspire so much uh, thought on software testing before. Um, but I, yeah. I think that everyone will get a lot of value out of that. So uh, let's have a little listen. Dress like me, walk, talk, and act like me. It just might be the next best thing, but not quite me. I'm Slim Shady, yes, I'm the real Shady. All you other Slim Shadies are just imitating. So won't the real Slim Shady please stand up? Please stand up, please stand up. Because I'm Slim Shady, yes, I'm the real Shady. All you other Slim Shadies are just imitating. So won't the real Slim That was The Real Slim Shady by Eminem. So, uh, Nancy, you're joining us at Test Bash Germany. This isn't uh, your first Test Bash, is it? No, this is my second. So I was in Philadelphia a few years ago, and now I get to go to Germany, which is a little bit further, but it'll be great. Um, I think my parents are going to come with me because they've never been to Europe and they see me travel all the time. And I finally said, you know what? You're retired and you have nothing else to do. You're getting on a plane with me. So they're going to come check it out while I'm there. And we'll probably extend a few days to see some of the sites over there and show them some parts of the world they haven't seen. So you're, uh, so we're, we're working you hard, I believe, and you're doing yeah. a workshop and a talk. Yeah. So your workshops, uh, so we were talking a little bit about sort of uh, implementing exploratory testing earlier and, you know, the, the challenges of selling that um, as a consultant to businesses. Um, is this kind of what you're, you're doing a workshop of the same name, um, implementing exploratory testing? Is that sort of, is it those experiences that uh, form that workshop? It can be, but what I've noticed in the past is people are more interested in the implementing part and less around guiding their organization through change which is probably, I reflected on that after I got feedback on a couple where I did do a big portion of it on change and people said, yeah, 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 I, I know how to do change in my organization, which I think when they go away and try, they'll see, oh, maybe I don't. Because that's how I felt too. I'd learn all this and go, oh yeah, I can, I can get this in, in organizations. And then after trying and doing it a few times and seeing, okay, that sort of worked, not as smoothly as I would have liked, what do I learn? I came up with a a better means and it's still it depends on the people you're selling it to but a lot of people have said no I don't want that part of the workshop I just want 
the implementing and or the implementing and the exploratory testing piece. So this one will mostly be all on implementing exploratory testing. And I take you through all the phases of testing except the actual testing part. Um, we don't do a lot around as you do test execution, how do you do that in an exploratory way? Purposely left that out because you can go tons of different places and get that. And it needs to be a full workshop all on its own. So this really focuses on how do you run all of your other testing efforts in an exploratory way? So if you're going to be doing, if you have a requirement to do a test strategy, how do you do that in a more lightweight for your context type of way, rather than starting with a 35 page template that somebody's built that you have to fill in all the various sections and nobody reads. And then how do you do reporting in an exploratory way? How do you do uh, even keeping track of the scripts that you're running in an exploratory way? And then how do you do that final test report in an exploratory way? So those are all the pieces that we cover and we play with robots while we do it. So that's something new that I added. I did it at a conference in North America here a couple months ago, and I had done a robot session before, and I had done the implemented exploratory session before, and I felt like there was something missing from the session. So I tend to have this weird thing where I give my brain a problem and I go to bed and I wake up the next morning and it has the answer. So I gave it a problem saying, you know, there's something missing from this workshop. I don't know what it is. While I sleep tonight, you figure it out. And I woke up the next morning and as I was driving to work, my brain said, you need to put the robots in. And I just thought, what? How is that going to work? And when I asked the question, it said, oh, I figured it out for you. Here's the agenda. And it kind of plopped in my head. Here's the full agenda. Here's what that would look like. Here's how you use the robots and show around. How do we do test strategy? How do we do planning? How do we do some execution? But less on how do you do that? I just give the robots to the testers and they start testing them. I don't have to coach them on here's how you test and what you do. They're all testers. They know that. But how do you report on what the people in your group are doing in a meaningful way to your stakeholders in an exploratory way? So they get to still test, but we're not talking about the actual execution piece other than how do you plan for it and how do you report on it? It just sort of happens. So it seemed to go over really well at the last session. A lot of people had fun. There were some bugs in my robots, which surprised me because I thought there wouldn't be, but we found them out at the end. So I'm going to have to work around that for the next one. But it'll be fun because it'll be interesting to see if people find the bugs. It took us quite a while to find them in the last one. Now that I know they're there, I can give some coaching and guidance so it doesn't take so long. But it'll be it's a lot of fun. It's a good session. It's one of the challenges of running a workshop for testers. They're You've got 30 testers in the room. You're guaranteed that they're going to find the bugs. Yeah, you're going to do, you're going to put yourself out there in a vulnerable position in a bunch of people whose job is to criticize other people's work all day long. Yeah. <laughs> There's no stress yeah. with that at all. No, no, it's perfectly fine. Perfectly exactly. fine. It's easy. I, I, I always just go with the guys of, uh, I just put the developer hat on and say, oh, that's a feature. That was uh, part uh. of the workshop. There was the bug there. And I say that because every time I've said that in a workshop, um, they've called BS on me and, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're right <laughs> yeah and i said that to these guys i'm like you won't find any bugs in the robots the goal of this isn't to find bugs because a lot of testing sessions that do testing the goal is find bugs find the best bugs find the most bugs right find the most interesting bugs this one isn't about that at all so i was fairly confident oh there's no bugs only to find oh crap there's actually this significant problem <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's hubris for you yeah exactly kind of stood up in front of the room and went so remember when i said about an hour ago yeah I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> it's it, it. Yeah, 
it happens to the best of us. Yeah, it was um, a good laugh. Oh, okay. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about uh, the talk that you're giving um, at Test Pass Germany. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about song number four. Sure. So Eminem's song was more about, hey, I'm, I have this new approach to testing and look out what I've got coming for you. Where this song is more about how I feel once I get into it. <laughs> so it's <laughs> Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, which <laughs> when you list, read the lyrics, it's kind of heavily sexually slanted so let's not talk about that piece of the song <laughs> more around just feeling like i've been thrown into the jungle so once i get in there and i've kind of got their okay in agreement it's always very hesitant unless they've worked with me before to go okay we you're fairly confident what you're saying yep we believe you but we still haven't seen it in action and as people were very much about like the proof is in the pudding once i see it i'll believe you even more except they've got their multi-million dollar project on the line. So it, sometimes it feels like, you know, I, f I finally got in, I'm, I'm here where I need to be, but this getting this more less traditional approach is tough. And some days it feels like I'm stuck in the jungle. I don't know if I'm going to make it out alive. <laughs> One of the lyrics is, you know where you are, you're in the jungle, baby, and you're going to die. Some days it feels like that. <laughs> so this is a good one to kind of blast on the way home from work and go, okay, everything's going to be okay. I'll survive. Let me just kind of funk out for a bit on the drive home and just relax and calm down. <laughs> That was Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. So as mentioned, uh, you'll be also giving um, a talk, uh, qualitative risk-based test reporting, which is, I'm not going to lie, a bit of a mouthful. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So like I said before, I don't give test metrics in this many tests passed, this many tests failed. So I have to give people something else instead because they still want to know how testing went. So what I've started to do is I use more of a qualitative approach. So I put together a dashboard that, and if you Google low tech dashboard, that'll give you an idea of what it looks like. I've added a few more columns based on whatever client and whatever they need, but that's basically the concept of it is a low tech dashboard. And it asks the question, we break down the application in areas that the business cares about. So that can look different depending on what project I'm on. And I find the testers that are testing that space and we talk about how they feel about the software. What are they seeing? And if I'm using business people who may not know the answer to that question, because it's kind of a funny question, right? I'm asking your opinion on something you're not necessarily comfortable critiquing. I'll phrase the question in this way. I'll say to them, you know, if we went live tomorrow, would you give me a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or kind of a meh, I'm not so sure. And if they go, oh, definitely a thumbs down, there's no way we could go live tomorrow. My next question is, okay, why not? Because that tells me what are they worried about? Where are they seeing issues? Where are things not going well? Sometimes the answer is, oh, we can't go live tomorrow because I've barely looked at this. And what I've seen, I'm nervous about. I don't know why I'm nervous yet because I need more time. Okay, great. You need to gather more information. 
or they'll say, no way, that doesn't work at all. And here's why. Great. Now we have bugs. And if they're not already in the system, let's get them in the system. Or they'll say, you know, it's not too bad. It's looking better. I'm, I'd say, yeah, okay, hesitantly, but yeah, we, we could make it work tomorrow. And I'm not trying to move the release date up. I'm trying to get information from the people that know the software on what's their opinion. And I found that the number of tests passing and failing don't always give me that, if, especially when I have 90% passing and 10% failing. It sounds like we're doing quite well. But I had a project where we were exactly at those numbers. But when you asked the question, could we go live on Friday, the absolute answer was absolutely not. We will not be able to run this company if we dare do that. So I noticed that on rescue projects that I was in, we cared less about the numbers and more about how do people feel? Are they concerned? Do they feel they're ready for this to go live? That was the more valuable metric. So I figured out a way over the last few years, how do I run a project on that metric rather than the pass or fail ones? So this session talks about, gives you some context as to why we should do this, and then shows a lot of great examples on how do you do that in the organizations you're in. So, so you're essentially kind of soliciting, uh, was soliciting the right word? Um, yeah. But yeah, like, yeah soliciting um, emotions from, from you know, the, the people who make the decisions and using that as a gauge for risk. Yes. I think it's interesting with risk because myself and uh, um, other people who are running workshops, we talk about risk quite a lot, but it seems to be a word that's sort of disappeared quite a lot um, in actual sort of day-to-day -day testing. And it seems feels feels very sort of underused. Like, what can we do to sort of promote thinking around risk in teams again? So a lot of my stuff focuses heavily on risk. So when we, even when we start to think about the scenarios that we're going to run, I ask the testers or the business people, depending who's testing, to say for every scenario you've thought of, what's the business risk? So if this scenario doesn't work, what will that mean to the organization? And is that high, medium, or low? For instance, if I can't book a flight on an airline web page, that's probably a high risk to the business that we can't generate revenue. But if I'm trying to track my flight, uh, probably lower risk. It's You can have lots of options for tracking flights. If the web page doesn't work for that, you have other options and it's not bringing in revenue. So lower risk. I also look at risk in technical terms and I ask the testers and my technical team to help with this one. For every scenario that we have, how technically risky is it? So when you made a change to that, or even that code or that integration, is it really complex? Does it brittle? Does it break all the time? Is it the type of code where we give it to the developers and they go, oh no, we got to change code in there. Oh, I'm not sure. That's such a mess. Or is it fairly a simple change? We're like, oh yeah, not a problem at all. That no big deal. It's easy to change. We're not worried when we go in there and to make code changes or it's fairly simply built. That's the other risk that I have them look at. So between those two, I can start to identify what are my more risky scenarios? Where are we going to want to focus our time because we have risk there, whether it's business or technical? And where do we maybe put less time? Because although those are important, there isn't a lot of risk associated with them. The business doesn't necessarily need that functionality as much as something else, or technically that's a fairly simple change. So we're not worried about it from a technical standpoint. And then when we report, I'm always asking them to think about risk too. So if you find an issue, or even when I'm asking them, how do you feel about things? I'm coaching them around, is that going to be a big deal to the organization? Or is that a big deal to the people that are using our software? 
sometimes I'll ask the question, is that going to get us in the new, on the front page of the paper or sued? Because <laughs> those are the ones you want to avoid. And then they'll start to give their metrics to me differently, right? Where they'll say, yeah, this doesn't look so great, but, you know, nobody uses that piece of the software, so I'm not worried. Or, you know, there's only a little issue here, but this is what we've built our company's reputation on. We can't have anything in this area at all. Excellent. Well, really looking forward to um, seeing your talk um, at Germany. So all that leaves us is uh, to choose your final song. So what's it going to be? So we kind of went fun to a bit crazy. And then this last one is completely different. So this is Pachelbel's Canon in D. And this one's been with me forever. Um, I started to play harp when I was 15 and ran my own business playing at weddings and funerals and receptions and all sorts of things. And this was a song that was my goal to learn on the harp. And I'd started off, I played piano and organ for a number of years. So learning the harp was fairly easy, but this one was just complicated on the harp for whatever reason. So I really threw myself into learning it and ended up getting to a place where I could just play it without a lot of effort. And because it was so automatic, just relax and chill out and escape. And I find if I've had a stressful day or things are going crazy at work, just to put this one on, it helps me clear my mind almost immediately. It just gets me into this calm, happy place. So this is a good one to kind of wrap up, I guess, our talk, get people in a more relaxed state and just to remind people to take it easy and not get too stressed out over testing sometimes. So that was uh, Canon in D by Johan Pachelbel, um, which will be a nice addition to the uh, Spotify playlist, a nice sort of relaxing lull maybe in the middle if people are listening to it on random. Um, so Nancy, thank you for coming on uh, the podcast and talking with me. Um, it's uh, yeah, still, still a learning curve for myself, but um, it was very enjoyable and uh, great to hear some of your thoughts on consultancy. So all that's really left is to sort of say, um, like you have the option to take um, a book uh, with you. Now I've seen some of your notes about what book that you what yeah. you were thinking of. I think this is a great idea. Um, why don't you tell us about it? So this one had me stumped, and I went through books I've read recently, and I've got one that I'm trying to get through, and it's forever long. And I thought, why would I want to just take one book? And what typically when I read a book, I never read it again. So I'll read it and then I'll be bored. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a blank book with as many pages as I can find, like 10 million pages if such a book exists. And for a couple purposes, one, I have lots of pages to take notes. So I'd have tons of time. I could write my memoirs. But on a more practical side, too, I'd have fire starter and toilet paper. So it serves as dual purpose. It maybe feels like cheating a bit, but... As a tester, I tend to bend the rules and see what I can get away with. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to see if I can get away with this too. So I am taking my 10 million page blank book so I can write my memoirs and start fires and have toilet. I'm fairly sure with 10 million pages, you could probably craft something to get off the island if you wanted to get off the island. I could. Maybe a paper mache boat. <laughs> that's like a chocolate teapot, surely, or a solar powered light. 
Well, like I say, it's um, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on. Um, where can we find you? Oh, yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the best, or email. Um, yeah. Cool. I'll uh, share your links in the um, references for the podcast. Um, and obviously, we talked about Test Bash, um, but do you have any other upcoming events? Anything you're working on at the moment? No, not this year. I did get asked to do one in North America, but it's like the day after Test Bash, and I thought, you know, how am I going to swing that? So told them no because I I don't like to take on too much. So. I don't have anything else this year, but lining some stuff up for next spring. I, I try not to do too many because I've got a fairly busy life right now. So like three or four years is usually my limit. So I'll be at that after this one and then start looking to next year. Excellent. Well, um, yeah, good luck with um, Test Bash Germany. And um, hopefully I'll see you there just before. I think uh, I, I'm sort of leaving just after the automation and testing session is done. But uh, I might uh, catch you before okay. that if you're coming a little early. Yeah. Cool. I'll be there. So uh, that's it for this uh, podcast. Um, if you want to follow us, we're at Tester Island on Twitter. Um, and if you want to get in touch, I'll provide the link at the bottom. If you want to submit your songs um, via our Google form, and I'll be in touch in the future. Goodbye from me and uh, goodbye from Nancy. Goodbye. Thanks for the fun. Tester's Island Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Mark Winteringham. Created by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island. Well, one thing that kind of backfires on you is that um, all the books get um, added to Goodreads um, to share with our listeners. This does mean now you have to write a memoir so oh, that we can no. put it onto Goodreads. Um, so we expect that within the year. Oh, perfect. Sure. I'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs>